This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. The Property Show on BFM 89.9, the business station. Good morning, you're tuned in to The Property Show, our weekly take on all things property related. I'm Sim Weibun. It's the last Friday of the month and as usual, it's the Property Legal Clinic, a segment of the show where we take in listener questions and have our guests weigh in on them. Our guest today is Ainal Marlinda, part of the conveyancing team with the law firm Zul Rafik & Partners. Good morning and welcome to the show, Ainal. Good morning, Sim. Thank you very much for having me today. Let's start off with our first question. It comes from Thomas. He's asking, in some countries, they have standard sales and purchase agreements. What is preventing Malaysia from adopting this? Um, actually, for Malaysia, we do not have a standard sale and purchase agreement for all types of housing. We only have standard sale and purchase agreement for property that, properties that are under construction. The ones that you are buying directly from developer, yes, we do have a standard sale and purchase agreement under the Housing Development Act. However, if you are buying properties directly from vendor or it's more called as a secondary purchase, there are no one-size-fits-all template in doing a sale and purchase agreement. So there is, to answer your question, there is a standard sale and purchase agreement uh, when it comes to direct purchase from developer or if properties are actually under construction. If you're buying properties that are not fully completed, they are still under construction, those are subjected to the standard sale and purchase agreement, whereby the purchasers um, or the consumers' protections are highly provided for. Yeah? For example, I can tell you there are four standard sale and purchase agreements under the uh, Housing Development Act. We have the Schedule G. Those are for the landed property with individual title, which is um, usually used for the for um, what you call this um, uh, double-story terraces. Yeah, we are using Schedule G. Schedule H are more for the stratified development for the apartments. Yeah, those are um, uh, Schedule H. We also have the Schedule I. Those are under the build then sell concept. Yeah, slightly different. The uh, the buyers actually buy the the developers build first, then they sell it. So these are Schedule I and subsequently a Schedule J for the stratified. What about auction properties? They are auctioned off from the bank. Would they be considered yeah. secondary property and therefore no standard sale SMPs? Auction properties are not, it's not subjected to an SMP. It's actually the moment you have signed off the, once you have agreed to the auction, you have actually paid the uh, deposits or the earnest deposit on the day of the auction. And the, there's no SPA, there's no standard SPA there. So it's basically once you have signed off the auction on the day of the auction, you accepted it, that's all settled on that day itself. There's no um, standard SPA as such. So it's, it's slightly different. But as you know, auction comes with other, other intricacies whereby you are buying accessories, you, there are no defects, liability period. So those are slightly different. Yeah, mm, interesting. So going back to the secondary one, so if there's no standard SPA, so it would be on the onus of the buyer and the seller to get a lawyer to draft it out and everything. But within the industry, is there kind of a standard template or is there a lot of variations among these contracts? Basically, as I said earlier, there is no one-size-fits-all template for the secondary purchase. However, um, unlike if you compare us to uh, New Zealand or Australia, it's slightly different. They have us what you call a 
guide for a real estate, they call it a real estate guide. So whenever you're entering into a sale and purchase agreement, the authorities, the authorities in charge which would actually share with you a, what they call a sale and purchase guide. Malaysia, we do not have that. That's why we encourage the purchasers or the sellers to actually employ or get themselves represented. So there are basic clauses such as the manner of payment, the collection of earnest deposits, the vacant possession, whether you're selling with uh, fixtures and fittings, those are basic requirements or basic terms or clauses that ought to be present in the SPA. However, uh, as comparative to the Schedule G, Schedule H, as I said, the standard SPA, you can't amend those provisions. The secondary purchase, you can amend. Both parties are at free hand to amend and negotiate on the terms. So there's always a possibility if you're not represented, then the SPA will be one-sided. Okay, moving on to our next question it comes from Selena. So she wants to know what is a defect liability period and maybe you can explain on the standard definition and more details on that. Okay, the defect liability period actually uh, originates from our uh, standard SPA, Schedule G, Schedule H, Schedule I, Schedule J, yeah? it, it originates from those. It's actually basically what it means is a defect that arose during the after vacant possession, meaning such as things like the cracks in the wall, the loose floorboards, the tiles, un, unusable fixtures, um, those are considered as defects. Think of it as similar to a warranty that you get when you are purchasing a car or a TV. But unlike purchasing a car and TV, you can't exchange the property with regards to uh, landed properties. Yeah? So defects is basically a, it's a warranty period uh, granted to the purchaser and it's calculated the date the purchaser receives the key or the delivery, delivery of vacant possession and the keys to the property. So this is where the developer is fully responsible to fix any defects uh, occurring on the property. Under the Schedule G and Schedule H, there's a limited timeline. You are, the developer is not under the obligation to hold on to the property or taking care of the property forever and ever. There is a limited period of 24 months from the date of collection of the keys. Yeah, so it's either you're buying a landed Schedule G or a, a stratified property, Schedule H, you only have 24 months for you to complain for any defects. The defects, however, is not defects as to anything, you know, it, 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 there's, a, there's a limitation there as well. It has to be a defective workmanship or materials. Yeah, so defective workmanship is in relation to, as I said earlier, uh, loose floorboards, any uh, leakage, any uh, fixtures and fittings that are not in order, uh, those considered as defects. Yeah, And also, if there's any indication that the property or the, the building is not constructed in accordance with the plans and descriptions as specified in your sale and purchase agreement. So it's always, that's why whenever I see the buyers, I always remind them for your vacant possession, please remember to bring your sale and purchase agreement. Do not keep it at home. Bring it with you so that you can refer back to the, the, the list of descriptions at the NXJ. You have a list of descriptions where the developer would claim they are building the property from certain materials. Yeah, So you need to have a look at, you need to bring those to remember which, and you need to check all the plugs, all the plug points. So the developer under the defect liability period, uh, mind you that the developer has 
is under the mandatory obligation to repair and make good at its own cost and expense uh, within 30 days of the developer having received a written notice from the purchaser. So they are not allowed to go beyond 30 days. They are supposed to repair it within 30 days upon receiving the purchaser's complaint or the purchaser's written notice. So the liability starts from the moment the purchaser collects his keys and uh, the liability period is 24 months from the date of vacant possessions. Okay, but are there any instances that this liability gets avoided? Because a lot of times we've heard the owner got a property and maybe in the initial stages, there was no defect. But later period, maybe the owner has done some minor re renovations and during the course of the renovation, they stumbled on a defect. Okay, when it comes to renovation, it's very common. Uh, good for you to mention this. Yeah, One common dispute or issue that usually arises during a defect liability period are the renovations that is done to the property. So that is why during the renovation of your home, you may contribute to the defects. So you might find out the developer, in, in, that, in such an instance, the developer may be unwilling to fix those defects, you see. So it's always advisable for you to wait until the defect LP period, the two-year period is over before making any major renovations to your home. Uh, because there's always a chance the developer may link, you know, the moment they will call their contractors, they call their architects and they will say, oh, the leakages is, could be due to you extending the master bedroom and you have actually gone beyond, uh, because it's no longer as per the approved building plans. You have amended it. Even though you have an approved approve the, any the, any rectification is with the approval. However, the developer can always deny paying for the defects because they say you have actually contributed to it. So it's best to get your contractors or get your architect on board to, to advise that the defects is actually not originated from yourself, your, your, your renovation, but it's actually the material defects of the uh, product, the material defects of the workmanship itself. It has nothing to do. If you can prove that, then you are, you are clear to go. But if it's somehow the developer can find a link, they can say it's contributory, then they can always deny or unwilling to fix and willing to contribute, they are willing to pay for the defect liability period. And bear in mind the defect liability period uh, and also the defect amount is actually packed to your full purchase price. There's a limit 5% of the purchase price. So it's not, the amount is not uh, beyond that 5%. It's up to that 5% in your sale and purchase agreement. Within these 24 months, is there a limitation into how many times you can claim the defect? Uh, again, same, the limitation is just within that two years. There's no, it, there's no issue if you go beyond a few, several times because the developer is quite aware of this issue of recurrence, especially when it comes to um, leakages, the roof leakages and all that. So it's quite common that you actually um, go back to the developer several times until you get it all sorted out. Um, however, again, as I said, it's, you need to do it all in writing uh, as long as you go back to the developer, fill up the defects form uh, in accordance with the requirements under the SPA, then they are under the obligation to do so to, to repair the defects accordingly. 
Okay, we're going to take a short break for some messages, but don't go anywhere. We'll have more questions and answers from Ainal. So stay with us, BFM 89.9. Welcome back. You're tuned in to the Property Show on the Morning Run. I'm Sim Weeboon and I have Ainal Marlinda, part of the conveyancing team with the law firm Zul Rafik and Partners. Um, we're here for the monthly property legal clinic, which takes place at the last Friday of the month. Earlier in the show, we were talking about SAPs, that's sales and purchase agreements, and defect liability period. Now, our next question comes from Samuel, and this is the situation that he's described to us. Uh, on a landed strata property under the SMA 2013, can a JMB or a JMC restrict entry for a parcel unit owner, assuming all fees paid for whatever reason? An example being rectification work on common ground, which restricts parcel owner entry to front of house for a period of time, but parcel owner did not agree to it. Anil, what are your thoughts on this? Okay, going back to the parcel owner's obligation, um, the only way the developer or the JMB or the MC is allowed to prohibit uh, entry is only in the event of the parcel owner is a defaulter. So the defaulter is only, the def definition of being a defaulter is provided for under our strata management, uh, maintenance and management regulations. So basically you need to be under the category of defaulter, meaning you have failed to pay the maintenance charges, you have failed to pay the sinking fund or any other uh, imposed uh, charges by the GMB and, G and MC. And this has to go on for more than 14 days. So if you fall under the category of defaulter, Yes, the developer has the right to do certain things. For example, they may be allowed, they are allowed to post your names and uh, prevent defaulters from utilizing shared facilities. Yeah. But in this case, uh, it's been clearly mentioned that you all fees are assumingly paid. So basically, you are not a defaulter. And therefore, the common ground, which is being uh, restricted due to the rectification done on the common ground, and this restrict the parcel owner from entry. Okay, as to this, even if you are a defaulter, the GMB and MC is not allowed to prohibit the defaulter to enter their own premise or their own parcel unit. Okay, because this is basically your rights to your property. They can't actually, even if you're a defaulter, they can't even do that. So what more if you have paid all your fees, they can't actually restrict you from entering your own parcel. They, what they should normally do, if there's no other way, they should get the purchaser's consent if you are going to use it for a certain period of time of the day. But however, they need to figure out a way to actually divert, to, to have a, a route, a proper route, make, uh, so that you have a proper entry or exit to your own house. So that's, uh, uh, it's not right when the developer do so. Uh, they can, there, are, there are limitations where they can, certain things they are not supposed to do under the SMA. There are a lot of things they can do under the SMA for your information. Um, as I said, they can even public, publicize the defaulters list and all that. But when it comes to access to your own unit, they can't. Those are very, um, you, you need to ensure that the, the, the path or the entry and exit is clearly provided for even if you are doing all this renovation on the common ground. All right. Now we move on to another question. It's coming from Tevi. So this is the situation that he's describing. Um, I work in Singapore and I'm buying a house in Selangor. Mm -hmm. Signing of the SPA and loan documents has to be done in Singapore because I can't travel back home. So apart from doing it in the Malaysian embassy, which I understand is not accepting visitors now, I'm left to seek 
services of a notary public, which is costing me a bomb. Is there any other means for me to get these papers signed? Okay, um, as far as I know when it comes to a signing of a sale and purchase agreement or loan documents in overseas, you we have provision under the National Land Code under Section 211, whereby uh, we have actually allowed, in our fifth schedule, yeah, we have actually allowed a list of a number of people that who can actually uh, attest to your signatures. So it can be a registrar of the High Court, a district judge, a magistrate, a notary public, uh, a diplomatic officer of Malaysia or a consular officer of Malaysia. But as you mentioned, the notary public uh, usual, is usual for Singapore, the notary public usually would cost much more than our diplomatic officer or consular officer uh, in our high comm. Yeah. So notary public, nonetheless, notary public has got these services whereby they can even come by to your uh, site instead of you going to their office. So that's why their charges are slightly more. Um, the other alternative is to actually engage with the Malaysian High Commissioner, which is in the Jervois Road. Yeah. You can, uh, currently I'm being told they are, they are entertaining uh, attestation or signing, but you need to do a prior appointment. It's all by appointment now. So what you can do, you can actually, you, they, do, they do do authentication or they do attest your signatures, but you need to make a prior appointment. And I think the, uh, if I'm not mistaken, their charges are around Singapore dollars between five to 10 Singapore and they only take cash. Yeah. So they do, you, they, you can go through them and it's only uh, through appointment and you can't sign the documents at home. You need to go over to the Malaysian High Comm and sign the documents before the consular or diplomatic officer. So it's uh, that's another alternative, yeah, um, to still resort to the Malaysian High Comm because you under the Malaysian, Malaysian National Land Code, under our National Land Code, is provided for. You can either go for the diplomatic officer or the consular officer in the Malaysian High Commissioner's office. Okay, uh, and this is our last question. It's coming from Chin. Um, he recently bought an old single-story terrace house in PJ. He had believed that he was buying a freehold property, but when signing the SMP, he noticed that there's a clause in the title which says restriction in interest. So he would like to know whether there is significant impact and differences compared to a normal freehold property, even though the title clearly states Garan Selama Lamanya. What are your thoughts on this, Ainal? Okay, to answer this question, basically your property is still a freehold and says, as, as they have the words grant untuk selama-lamanya or it also means in, in perpetuity without any expiry date. Uh, we, however, with the restriction in interest there, it means you can't freely transfer it without getting the state authorities' consent. Um, being an owner of a freehold property basically means that you take complete registered ownership of the property, including the building and the land. Yeah? So uh, freehold is also known as perpetuity. Okay, why, what it means here is that the freehold property can also be a lease. It has the leasehold restriction there. This is normally, it usually happens where, whereby the property previously was actually a leasehold category. So, uh, yes, your property is still freehold. It's not considered as a leasehold, but you there is an additional obligation. That is, when you want to sell, you would need to get uh, state consent involved. You need to actually apply for the state consent. So, it's an additional step 
for you to actually procure the state consent. And this has uh, is a time implication and slight cost implication there when you are applying for the state consent, which is normally on the owners. The owners is on the on the vendor. He would need to get the consent from the state authority, and there is an occasion whereby uh, the authority may reject for whatever reason. Yeah. So the, your to answer your question, yes, your property is still a freehold, but with a restriction, and that restriction requires a consent to be obtained by yourself. In the event of a rejection from the state authority, is there any grounds to appeal? Is there any way you can fight your case to transfer the title then? There are certain instances whereby rejection happens, whereby because this, this is under the ambit of the, the powers of the state or a state authority. So in the event of a rejection, what we normally do is we would appeal against the rejection. And you don't, do not just simply appeal without providing any justification. You would need to provide, for example, you the common justification would be that there is a need for you to sell because of your financial conditions or because of health conditions. You need to substantiate with your medical report. Uh, if it's um, uh, financial conditions, you need to show your, maybe perhaps a letter from the uh, liquidator or letter from the, uh, you know, your notice for bankruptcy or some, uh, any of those. Or if you need to actually, uh, basically for your children to go for their overseas or for their further studies. So you need to show at least a letter of offer from the universities. Yeah. So with all those um, possible reasons or possible justifications, the state will actually um, sit down and actually uh, grant the consent. Very high, very unlikely that you would need to appeal uh, more than uh, three times if it's with those justifications. But if you do not provide any justifications, you may need to appeal a number of times before the state would actually grant um, the approval. What about um, passing on the title to your children? Say maybe you've passed away or you're still alive, but you want to will it to your children and whatnot. Does it still require state? Uh, consent. Okay, even passing it on to your children, what it means when you say the restrictions, yeah, let me just recap on the restriction. The restrictions is basically a limitations that is imposed by the state authority. So the limitation is clearly stated on your grant. So normally it would say your land is not allowed to be transferred uh, without this consent from the state. Uh, normal, when it comes to the usual uh, leasehold property, it, it, the, the limitations are slightly extended. You will have the lands are not to be transferred, charged, mortgaged without the state authority consent. So uh, when it comes to your freehold with a restriction, it's usually just one, which is you are not allowed to transfer. So if you're transferring between the father to daughter, it entails a transfer. So you would still need to procure, you still need to get the consent there. But in view that it's between a father and a daughter, it's, it won't, it, normally it wouldn't be rejected because it's quite common. Yeah, It's only when it comes, when it involves a transfer between a different entity, then the state may inquire as to why or the, you know, they will inquire further the need for the transfer. All right. And I think that's all we have for today's property show. Thank you for being on the show, Ainal. And so that was Ainal Marlinda, part of the convincing team with the law firm Zulrafik and Partners. Join us again next month as we try to answer all your property legal questions. Send your questions to property at bfm.my or WhatsApp us at 018-789-8899. We've got the 10 a.m. news bulletin coming up next, followed by Enterprise BFM 89.9. The Property Show on BFM 89.9, The Business Station.
you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.